Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Today for Spirit in Action, we're going to a much better place, a place called Utopia, but not just a dreamer's world. It's a place and a way of being based on science and careful reflection about human possibilities and likelihoods. In just a moment, I'll have Martin Shanehalls on the phone to talk about his new book, Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia. Equality Reimagined, which draws on Martin's expertise in cultural anthropology and on his study of what does and doesn't make the world a better place. Martin's research has included three decades in China and two decades in India, and he has taught at the University of Pennsylvania, Johns Hopkins, Columbia University, as traveling faculty for the School for International Training USA, and will be starting this fall as professor of anthropology at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. This is a rich topic and book, and I can't imagine we can cover more than several highlights of what Martin has to share. So be sure to check for bonus excerpts on northernspiritradio.org, parts of the interview that we can't fit into the broadcast. Get ready to equip yourself for a journey to a better world as Martin Shanehalls joins us by phone from Boone, North Carolina. Martin, how wonderful to have you here today for Spirit in Action. And great to be with you, Mark. And you're in Boone, North Carolina, where I've spent a couple weeks over summers past. There's a national Quaker gathering that I wander around with each year. This year it's in Iowa, but a couple years it was in Boone. It's a particularly beautiful place. And it's at enough of an altitude that it's not got the oppressive summers that I associate with much of the South. Yes, it's idyllic weather, and that's how it usually is for most of the summer. And the mountain views are incredible, too. You must be used to some kind of altitudes, even though you lived a lot of your life in, what, Michigan and New York. The time that you spent in China, was that at some altitude, too? That was, and that was at a much higher altitude. It's at kind of the tip of the Tibetan plateau, so some of the mountains would be at 4,000 meters, which is quite high. How much time did you actually spend with the Yi people there? And the Han people is part of your travels in China and times in India. Just give me an overview of your time abroad. So the very first time I went to China was 30 years ago. It's hard for me to believe it. But I spent a full year at a junior high and high school and living on a university campus in Wuhan. Wuhan is in central China. It's called one of the three ovens of China, unfortunately, and it is very hot. But what is amazing is I was there during the 1989 Tiananmen Square student movement. It was an incredible time to be there because I saw so many Chinese fighting and struggling with absolute conviction for things that they believed in a way that I feel so many times young Americans don't do and certainly don't do in the coordinated fashion that the Chinese did it. And I was on a university campus that was very active with friends who were trying to escape China, friends who were involved coordinating with Beijing. It was a great inspiration to me, and of course, sad that it turned out the way that it did. Right. That was 1989, and I went back to China for another full year to study an ethnic minority group 
the Yi are actually larger in number than the Tibetans, so they're one of the largest minority groups in China. They live in the mountains. They have their own language. It was a fascinating time to spend nine months in 1994 to 95 with them. Again, I was at a school. Schools are great places to be because you get to be a teacher to students. I taught oral English and went with the young people to their villages up in the high mountains. So you were actually, for them, teaching English, although you're an anthropologist and you're really just trying to learn how the local people live or understand their life. Did you have specific objectives with respect to the Yi people? I did. The Yi have a caste system which in some ways is similar to American race in that the two different castes, an upper and a lower, are not allowed to intermarry upon pain of death. There are all kinds of other things that go along with it. And so I ended up writing a, a comparison and hopefully a book that tries to bring greater understanding to racism in America, also apartheid South Africa, and caste in India compared to caste among the Yi. The Yi are a subsistence agriculturalists. It's an unusual place to find a caste system. Subsistence agriculture is an unusual place to find? I would have thought that was normal because of India. I was kind of thinking that they were subsistence, I mean, the people there, the caste system. Well, it exists all over India, but it's often the case that people, especially with South Africa, that scholars have said that they think that race is connected to economic exploitation, which it is, but it's not only an economically exploitative social formation. There are other things that are going on. And my book is called Intimate Exclusion, my book on the Yi, because what I argue is that caste and race are not just about control of the economic and political sphere, but about the segregation of one group keeping out another group from the intimate sphere, which means marriage, the family, home, anything where there's a kind of intimacy. In India, eating together cross-caste in the countryside doesn't happen. People will not accept water from someone who's lower caste than them. So if you give someone a cup of water, a cup of tea, it's a way to tell where they stand in the caste hierarchy. It's true if Untouchable gives it to, say, Brahmin, but is it true that the Untouchable would not accept a cup from a Brahmin? No, it's the Untouchable will accept it from the Brahmin, but not vice versa. Which, by the way, is interesting because it means that the anxiety and the vulnerability are residing, in that case, among the upper caste. And that enters into my argument in this book, Work, Love, and Learning, in Utopia, in that I argue that all of us suffer, even people at the top from hierarchy. Yeah, that and many more points, folks, are in the book by Martin Shainals called Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia, and the subtitle, Equality Reimagined. And so that's what we're going to be talking about is utopia here. I wanted to start off, Martin, by mentioning that, first of all, I have to declare my unity with many of your values and perspectives on the world. So I may bring up points where I'm kind of playing the devil's advocate. That having been said, I have the arguments with myself. And so 
if I ask you questions, it's not necessarily because I disagree at all with you. It is likely because, help me figure this out because I haven't got the answer yet. Mm -hmm. And I have to do a mea culpa. I haven't finished your book. There's 25 pages left that I haven't been able to get to. And that's kind of unfortunate because, you know, I'm right at the end where you're talking about how you're going to make this happen, what the structure is. And particularly, I'm interested in how do you enforce voluntary utopia, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, right. And I haven't, I've only got a few pages into that chapter. So I'm missing a couple pieces. So when I'm asking the questions, they're sincere here. I don't know the answers. Okay. But as you say throughout the book, it's a good thing to ask questions you don't know the answers to. Yes. That's a different kind of learning that enriches education as opposed to the stultifying thing is like, okay, now let's check your name. Do you know your name? <laughs> right. It is so stultifying, and I don't know why teachers don't recognize that. Uh, I'm, I mean, there are times when you need to check for knowledge, and so you can ask those questions that you know the answer to. But in most of life, we ask questions because we want to know something, and so we should do the same in the classroom. I have read everything except the last 25 pages, and that's only just a question of time and sleep that I didn't get to those. I found your responses. I could just see you doing the debate with yourself, and I think you must have talked this over with a whole lot of people and got their feedback. And so you tried to incorporate what they had to say and what you could best discern about this. Could you start off, perhaps, by giving a little description of utopia, that is to say, you know, kind of a day-in-the-life view of it. If I walk out my door and Utopia's here, what do I see here, witness, that says, oh, yeah, I'm in Utopia. I clicked my heels, and here I am in <laughs> Utopia. How do I know? What would I see? Well, you'll see rainbows and stars and all and kinds of... Unicorns. Unimaginable <laughs> unicorns and everything else like that. Obviously joking. And one thing I want to say, kind of in framing my answer, is that I know the word utopia has lots of kind of fanciful connotations and negative connotations to so many people, too. It's something that's some kind of paradise that could never exist. It doesn't have to be that way, and it shouldn't be that way that we think of utopia that's something that's somehow fanciful but not real. When you would walk out your door in utopia, one of the things that would feel profoundly different is that work would be something that you would do because you wanted to do it, not something that you had to do in order to avoid falling into a subsistence hole where you couldn't afford food and housing and shelter. There's enough, by far enough, and I document this in the book carefully because I know people don't believe it, but enough food to go around to feed the world and even to feed the increase in population that's coming and to do it in a way that reduces the carbon footprint. And if that's the case, we should all be guaranteed enough food, enough subsistence items like housing and health care. And then that frees us up to work and I do believe in work and the idea of being creative and being creative and giving something to society. So I'm not consigning people just to sitting around doing nothing, but their creative impulses can receive a kind of transformation in which they're free to do them because they want to do them, which is when we do our most important work. I mean, when we work the best because we want to do it. <laughs> 
There's one thing that you mention in the book, which I've certainly seen it referred to obliquely, at least in other cases, but you say it explicitly, and I've mentioned it to economists that I've interviewed, and they'll take exception to it. That is that with the rising amount of automation and efficiencies of scale, that the amount of work that we have to do becomes very small. We don't need to have 40-hour work week. We don't need to have a 20-hour work week. And as soon as I say that to an economist, they say, oh, yeah, but then there's all these other needs, desires, and such that come in. And so that's why we need 40 hours. And I think I'm on your page, not theirs. And I'll encourage people to read the book, Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia, Equality Reimagined. In the book, they'll find the detail. You don't slight things. You do your research thoroughly. So I'm pretty clear that we could do something radically different than what we do. I'm not sure if we'd have the same number of Barbies on the shelf if we change things, if you know what I mean. I mean, There's a whole bunch of stuff that maybe we wouldn't have so many phones and so many people staring at their phones. Or maybe we would. Maybe that's all we'd have because that's what people love to do. Well, let's take the phone issue. I know people are very attached to their smartphones. I know that from my students. And so when I walk in class, they're all on their smartphones. But they're also all very vocal about the cost that it has for them, cost meaning the social cost. They know the way that it isolates them from other people or connects them in a way that's not meaningful and authentic. And the same is true for all consumer items. I think that so many times consuming becomes a kind of compensation for the pleasure that we don't get at work. And to me, that's really sad because we spend most of our time working and then have to rush out and buy consumer things and enjoy a quick two weeks of vacation and a little retirement before we die. I mean, it makes no sense. Work itself should be valuable. So should learning. They should both be enjoyable. You're right. There may not be as many products, but that's a good thing. I mean, I'm always amazed when I go online and I look up any sort of thing, you know, look up pillow and (laughs) there are 5,000 brands of pillows. It's incredible and it's also incredibly wasteful. So I walk out of my house and here's some of the things that I witness, right? And why did I walk out of my house might be one of the questions. I believe in your vision of utopia. We don't have work and we don't have study as we now conceive of them. These these mm-hmm. words mean different things. So could you tell me what work and what study mean in the utopia that you're envisioning? Yes. So let me give some background, which is that in the American tradition, of course, we have what people often refer to as the Protestant work ethic or the Puritan work ethic, which is a certain view about work that's not shared by all cultures. And that view is that you work hard, that work is a kind of asceticism, so it's not pleasurable, it's intentionally not pleasurable, And it is opposed to pleasures, especially in the case of the Puritans, the pleasures of the body and of the senses. So those were seen as being potentially evil. So work was given a moral virtue, but a moral virtue precisely because it wasn't pleasurable. And and school follows the same thing. We even use the same words, right? Homework, schoolwork. I did my work today, so I feel good. I didn't do it today, so I don't feel good. It sets up an opposition between activities that we enjoy and that are pleasurable, but that we are supposed to feel guilty about because they're quote-unquote play and not productive, and then those things that are work. 
I want to end that opposition. I want to end it, first of all, for some fairly intuitive reasons, which is that if work is pleasurable and creativity is pleasurable and learning is pleasurable, then we'll be much more happy as humans because we'll enjoy those very human endeavors. Learning is central to what we are as humans. Children love to learn when they're young, and school turns it into a chore. So many people, I have had this conversation, so you're right, that there's an argument in the book in which I acknowledge the things that people will say, especially about work and school. People will say, well, people, if they don't have to work, they'll just sit at home and collect their subsistence checks. And I really want to challenge that. People are not looking around carefully if they think that humans don't work for reasons other than money and status. We do huge amounts of very important things like parenting, for example. We do all kinds of hobbies, and they're denigrated because they don't earn money, and yet why should they be? I'm in a choir in New York City and and here in Boone, We're volunteers, but we're very good, and we perform a really valid service, and we don't charge for it, we don't make money, and therefore it's not called work, but it's every bit as much a contribution to society and one that people are willing to make because they enjoy doing it. It takes a lot of time and effort, yes. And time and effort for something you love is not a problem, right? Exactly. In fact, you know, conservatives love to talk about freedom, But usually they mean freedom to keep whatever money they earn, but they don't think about freedom in terms of work. But why shouldn't work be something that's freely engaged in rather than compulsory? And I'm going to say something a little bit provocative, but I think there's some merit in it. You know, if we recognize that compulsion changes the nature of sexuality, namely that rape is horrible and odious because it's compulsory sex, Shouldn't we also think about the idea that compulsory work might be odious and objectionable and something that we should rethink in the future? You're economists. You're right. There are some who will say there's always going to be enough work, but there are also a lot of others who document what most of us can see. You know, agriculture, in the past, most of us were farmers, and now we're not. The same thing is happening in industrialization. And having grown up in the Detroit area, you can see that. I know, having worked trying to get jobs for people on the west side of Chicago, the factories are gone and or they're automated. So I don't know where the economists are um, doing their work, but they need to get out and see the real world a little bit more. But that's good news to my mind. If we have less and less work to do, That should free us up to make work voluntary and to recreate the way that work happens. Yes. And I mentioned before we got on the air, Martin, I'm Quaker, and we have uh, these things. Since you spent time teaching at Swarthmore, you probably have more of an idea of what Quaker means than most. But we have these things called testimonies, and one of them is about simplicity. What you really want to do for simplicity is to maximize your return for what you're putting in. And a lot of people just can't imagine. They just think more is better. And more is not better. In fact, I have a very wise saying that is my very own. You feel free to quote me here. Too much of a good thing is a bad thing. That's good. I like that. <laughs> so, so anyway, simplicity is not a, a generally accepted value in our society, even though a lot of people are dying for lack of it. Yes. 
they really are. And those who are striving for more and more, I think that striving in many, many cases, you know, the millionaires who feel that they're poor and need to get $10 million, and then the decamillionaires who need to get $100 million, it's a classic addictive behavior, namely that what they have is never enough to satisfy, that they need more. That's how an addiction works. And the other piece of the addiction is that in addictive behavior, people will do things to get the drug regardless of their consequences to their own well-being or the well-being of those around them. I think we can see that happening so much in corporate and capitalist America that companies will do anything for more and more money regardless of the destruction that it brings to the environment and to the workers and to the community. And folks, we're speaking with Martin Shainhalls. His recent book, Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia, Equality Reimagined, it came out just this past January. It is a rich and an intense experience. Uh, the visioning that you do is profound, Martin. One of the things that I found myself asking about, and you, you justify this with, since you're an anthropologist, you look around the world and see examples where other people might just limit their view to their neighborhood. You talk about aspects of our living and our fulfillment and our well-being that most people don't even realize are options. But what are your basic values that undergird this vision? I mean, I, I know that you want to get rid of hierarchy, that you believe that that has a really horrible effect on what comes out the other end. But your fundamental values, do you think you could name them? My happiness seems to be one of them. I'm intentionally using the word pleasure and happiness, and I know that those are provocative words too because for lots of people that sounds like it's something self-indulgent. It's not. The pleasure that humans and that animals feel, and especially mammals, most likely arose to reinforce our desire not just to please ourselves, but in the case of mammals, to take care of offspring, to be nurturing. It's the mammalian strength, and that feeling of giving nurture and being nurtured is intensely pleasurable. And that becomes generalized in evolution so that by the time you get to humans, Humans nurturing other humans besides their own offspring is the essence of love and, to me, also the essence of morality. And so when I'm talking about happiness, I'm talking about the happiness and joy that comes from a non-hierarchical engagement with other humans in which there's a kind of giving of compassion and receiving of compassion. All things that, as you say, I am able to show, having been all around the world, are things that are really universal. Everywhere I go, when you ask people what their utopia is, which is a fascinating question to ask, and one that I have asked, people always say, from young people to older people, from the most remote places to urban places, they will say happiness comes from family and friends who love you and who you love and from your interactions with them. It is a very simple idea and a very intuitive idea. And what I want to do in the book, what I think that I've done, is thought about what gets in the way of that very real happiness. In that sense, it's hierarchy. Hierarchy makes us do so many things out of a sense of fear and anxiety and anger and conflict that are detrimental and obviously not only lacking in compassion, but absolutely evil. 
And I'm thinking, of course, of the 20th century and war and nationalism, which are up high on my list as things to eliminate, and genocide. And all of those things can be eliminated. And we're going to get into more detail about that with Martin Shanehalls in just a moment. But first, I want to remind everybody that you are listening to Spirit in Action, a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web, Northern Spirit radio.org. It's not a southern spirit, it's a northern spirit, because that happens to be where <laughs> Wisconsin is. Northernspiritradio.org, and that ORG is organic as opposed to commercial, and that's one of the reasons I'm in <laughs> such harmony with what Martin Channels has to share in Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia Equality Reimagined. On our website, you'll find links. You can just Google Martin's name or, or the name of the book, Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia and you'll find it. But there's links on NorthernSpiritRadio.org that'll make it easy, including for all our guests of the last 14 years. And we've had a wealth of people working for and imagining and trying to find a way forward for a better world. And that's certainly what Martin is doing here. Also, information on our site are the stations, some 40 stations nationwide that carry our programs, and you'll find all kinds of other useful information. And there's a comment button, and I'm pretty sure that Martin would be big on this. Communication, two-way communication is vital. And you make many points about this in the book, Martin, as you talk about the fact that it's not enough for a performer to be there. The interaction with people receiving hearing and reflecting back is crucial. So I need that too here at Northern Spirit Radio. So please, when you come and listen to our programs, give us the feedback. Help us grow because two-way does it much better than individuality alone. Also on our site, there is a donate button. This is full-time work, unlike Martin Shane. Halls. I do not work for the university there in Boone. Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina is where he's at. I depend upon your donations to make this full-time work continue. So please click donate when you come. Even more important though, I'd say support the local community radio station. Local media, alternative voices are so absolutely crucial to a better worldview. And Martin, you point this out in the book, and there's so many ways in which you and I are on exactly the same page. Mm-hmm. So please support your local community radio station first and then help me out if you can. And uh, we're going to continue talking to Martin. Now, there's really about 20,000 things that I want to talk to you about, Martin. And we're just going to scratch the surface, folks. So in order to have this full visioning of what Equality Reimagined is about, you need to get Martin's book. Shane Hulse, by the way, is spelled S-C-H-O-E-N. H-A-L-S, obviously a good German word. The link is on Northern Spirit Radio, or maybe Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia. I think you'll find him. I'm going to take a little detour here. Your work is clearly strongly informed by your work. Being an anthropologist, having lived and studied in China and India and elsewhere around the world, you clearly have a big view there. The philosophy, the worldview struggling argument, the synthesizing, this for me is reminiscent of guns, germs, and steel, Even more so, it's reflective for me of someone I interviewed last year, Jeremy Lent, wrote a book called The Patterning Instinct. I think you'd find it very interesting, too. I think the two of you need to have a dialogue. 
I'm even impressed a little bit by how it interfaces with some of the ideas of Jordan Peterson, who's certainly well-known, because he describes some of the reasons why we do things. And, and, and I think there's a useful conversation. I'd like to put all of you in the same room and have you listen to each other and profit from one another's insights. I'd love to do that. I'll be the first to sign on. You have me signed on. Okay. <laughs> Seriously. I'm serious. I'm sure I can get Jeremy Lent in on this, by the way, if you're interested. I can connect the two of you up. I can call him up. And I would hope to get Jordan Peterson in on this, too. I mean, I have him on my list because I think he's got some wonderful insights. One of the other people I would include for a different reason is George Slakoff. Uh-huh. Yeah, I do know him. Yeah. I mean, I know his work, which is very interesting. And one of the things that he says about politics, particularly in the United States, is that there are those people who are of the authoritarian father view of the world, which is hierarchy, of course. Yeah, exactly. And that's interfaced with people whose emphasis in specific situations, we might be authoritarian in one case, and we might be nurturant parent in another case. Very clearly, you are leaning strongly in your utopia vision to the side of nurturant parent. I don't see anywhere in there where you're really uh, embracing arms open wide, those who are into the authoritarian father worldview. So I had a question about that right away. Is this, is this only going to work for part of the people? I mean, are there people who really feel better, more fulfilled? I have a brother, I think, who is going to be on the authoritarian father's side. Yeah, well, p what people usually say is others will be cast adrift. The usual refrain in America is right on the top and saying that people need to be compelled to work and they need to be compelled to do the right thing. That's actually a false view. It may be a view that holds to a certain extent in our society. It's what we've grown up with. And obviously, if you're raised in a pattern in which you only do things in response to compulsion, then you come to believe that you'll only act that way and that everyone else will act that way. But humans are very flexible in reality in the conditions that we can adapt to. The other piece is really important to say and my friends really challenged me, those who weren't anthropologists, challenged me on this and said that I must be imagining something, but this is based upon actual research. Humans, for most of our existence, lived without warfare, lived a sharing and egalitarian life for 95% of our time on Earth, from 200,000 years ago when we first evolved to roughly 6,000 years ago or less when the first hierarchy what people call civilization, when the first civilizations arose and most likely arose through warfare, one group conquering another, enslaving them and leading to hierarchy and all the rest. That's a really optimistic point because what it says is that it's not an imaginary thing that humans are capable of being sharing and compassionate. It's a reality and it's something that existed and also explains why we as humans most likely survived as a species and thrived for so long. So really important to stress that point because it's, especially in New York City, you know, when you tell someone that <laughs> you're talking about utopia and compassion, people give you a dirty look. And I understand it, and certainly riding on the subway, you'd think that there's not much compassion at all. But the point is that there can be. And even today, 
you know, we often look the small acts of kindness that are going on all around us all the time. We don't report them in the news media enough. You do, and that's one of the reasons alternative media is wonderful. But so many times what gets attention is the horrible things that people do. And we need to attend to that, but we also need to recognize small acts of kindness that are going on all around us. There's a whole lot of wonderfulness that doesn't get reported. I do myself, though, see competing forces in why does the bad news get reported and the good news you know it can be in one of the sections inside you know the human interest story but mainly what we have to report is the stupid thing that donald trump said today you know Mm -hmm. that kind of how it goes so the initial experience that you're describing the foragers not having conflict like what we know Garden of Eden, as in the biblical vision of it, you know, there's no violence and we don't even need animals back then. And the story, as it's told, when people are, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, that's when they have to start working, which you can see is antithetical to well-being. So were you raised actually Jewish or have any much connection with that? Does that inform or maybe counter-inform what you think about the world? Actually, I was raised in a secular Christian household, or nominally Christian household, but I grew up in a large Jewish community in metropolitan Detroit with lots of secular Jewish friends, so not a religious influence perhaps, but I think a a kind of cultural influence. And I've always resonated with that secular, progressive Jewish influence. There's another thing that I found very interesting, and I, I was wondering something about your religious exposure background. As you're trying to envision, as Martin Shainhalls is trying to envision utopia, your book, the first chapter essentially, is addressing sex and gender as one of the hierarchies that we need to get rid of. And I hope I'm not simplifying this too much because we don't have that much time left. But essentially, you say we have to get rid of sex and gender completely in utopia to reach this vision that's going to so much increase happiness and well-being in the world. You want to say that more properly in your language, Martin? Sure. I, uh, sex can mean different things. So I, I'd like to say that I want to challenge, and I'm being intentionally provocative here, challenge the idea that we should be in our own camps based upon gender and gender identity. And I also want to challenge, and this is certainly a big challenge, but challenge people to think about being attracted to someone else not based upon their gender, not based upon their race. And my ideas come here from the fact that in the past, of course, society tried to constrain who we could be attracted to and who we could marry based upon race. It wasn't that long ago that that was true in the United States. And so I'm also questioning whether kind of gender groups should be the basis upon which attraction should occur. I'm not by any means advocating that there be obligation or compulsion to love anyone you're not in love with. But wouldn't it be nice if the person who was compassionate and nice the nice guy or the nice woman would not finish last, but finish, you know, somewhere up toward the head and have that be true not only in the world of work, but in the world of the dating game as well. So many people I know are attracted to the bad boy or the bad girl, to put it colloquially, to the person who is likely to harm them or threaten them psychologically and or sometimes physically. 
of course, I'm really thinking about what leads to that situation and how we can establish a kind of egalitarian and compassionate hierarchy and at the same time challenge gender. I think that gender and gender hierarchy exists partly because there is a reification of the categories of male and female that occurs through sexuality, and I'd like to see that at least weakened and in its place, attraction based upon compassion. I found it interesting that this is, I think, the first chapter in the book that you address this. This is the first one you take head-on because the book, again, Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia. So love, I guess, is the equality reimagined that you're addressing there. But I found it interesting that that's the first one. How much was that influenced by your experience of I guess, the hierarchy of people in society, because you happen to be gay, you've, I think, perhaps seen firsthand how that hierarchy works. Yeah, it was influenced by that, because I wish that, as a gay man, that the LGBT community would provide genuine alternatives to the nature of society within the dating and community of love and relationships, but unfortunately, that doesn't happen as anyone from a metropolitan area knows any gay man in particular, there's incredible hierarchy and a reproduction of the same kinds of values that have been used to put us down as we've grown up. And so many times humans do that. We use the tools of the oppressor and then recreate our own kinds of oppression, put each other down. And that's really, really tragic and leads to so many hurts. And so it is true. I'm focusing on that specifically because I want to think about ways that people can be much, much kinder to each other in the realm of interpersonal relations and the sorts of relations that don't get talked about by broad thinkers that often, broad utopians. Utopians usually talk just about how work is going to be rearranged, and that's important, but that's not enough. You know, the sorts of things that often drive people to seek status are the kinds of hurts that happen in the micro worlds of of love and family and friendship and dating. And so if we can get that to change along with the work piece, there will be a nice synergy that hopefully creates a victorious cycle rather than a vicious cycle. I was stunned when I realized that your first chapter there, the issues that you wanted to address were, I guess, echoed, pre-echoed or something in writing by the Apostle Paul. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. Mm. And I was stunned to think that, wow, you there is some thinking about utopia that was going on echoed over 2,000 years ago. Right. I think that's not accidental. I mean, all of the world's major religions have some piece in them that's very utopian and egalitarian, and sometimes a very strong piece that unfortunately has gotten waylaid as religions become institutionalized. But it's there in all of the major religions as a central idea. And I think you can see echoes in my writing of tweaking certain sorts of religious ideas in a way, but acknowledging their existence. The idea of the outcast person being of interest to us, the neglected person, that that's something that does interest us but we can use that to redistribute attention to those people who are neglected. 
you know, I'm aware that there's no way that we're going to get even an adequate amount of what Martin Shanels has to share here today in this broadcast. We've only got 55 minutes for the broadcast. So folks, do remember to go to NordenSpiritRadio.org and listen to our bonus excerpts from this broadcast. There's some really valuable things there. Again, folks, the book is Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia, Equality Reimagined. And I'd like to offer this challenge for every listener. If you find any problem with anything that Martin has written, I encourage you to come up with your own vision of utopia. What would be better? What would be workable? What would flourish and meet all of these wide needs? And that's a good way in which to approach this book. Because we have unfortunately been told that if you think about what they may say, you're a dreamer, but you're not the only one. So let's dream together and see what we can pull together. So a couple of the points I would mention, the transition from hunter-gatherer, from foraging to agriculture. Daniel Quinn, in his book Ishmael and the Story of Bee, He talks about that, that the story of Eden is maybe capturing from the point of view of the foragers, you know, you're going to work by the sweat of your back, you're going to die, you'll have pain and all these kind of things because of the work that you'll be required to do. That that thing that's included in the Bible is actually a telling from the point of view of the happy forager. Mm Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a, a cute little glimpse that it resonated for me in any case. Yep, I think there's some truth there. I'm sure that many people will have felt challenged when you talk about attraction being based on something other than gender. You know, the looks or he's wealthy, therefore I'm attracted to him. I wonder why Melania is with Donald Trump. Maybe she finds him captivating. I don't know. (laughs) But I have to suspect that the success thing is a big draw for a lot of people in, in their relationships. So one of my questions is, and you seem to focus a lot on happiness, and you know the happiness index instead of having the GDP or GNP. Talking about happiness, and Bhutan, I understand, actually implements this, and other countries do too, so that you're actually measuring happiness. You refer to happiness throughout the book, and I'm pretty much on that same page, but I have this deep, niggling question. If you can answer this one, my day will go forward with sunshine and, and rainbows and unicorns. And that and, is. And then I, w- I win the prize of a million dollars, right, if I answer it. If only we cared about money, which we don't, right? That's so, right. We don't. So the question is what about the value of survival and dominance, which are built into evolution? It's natural selection. It is. And mind you, you can have power in the form of many people working together, right? So I'm I'm not neglecting the idea that maybe we achieve our greatest power by not having hierarchy. But I suspect that the people who are the authoritarian father ascribers will go and a different direction and they will have a different power and there will be problems for those of us who are all egalitarian and and don't like that because as as we saw in Germany the anarchists as well as the Jews as well as the gays as well as the union folks the communists they were all killed by Hitler's folks so what about the value of survival dominance and power 
compared to happiness. You don't seem to give it much importance in your rating. Well, I do give it some kind of maybe it's in there implicitly and that I do acknowledge that there are reasons that people want to strive for hierarchy. People want to have a mate who's wealthy and powerful. Certainly, it is in animal behavior to have dominance hierarchies. And the way that evolution works is it usually doesn't entirely eradicate past behaviors but there's a theory that the brain just evolves over the reptilian. It's often referred to as the reptilian brain, that the other kinds of the brain have evolved over it, but that we therefore, yes, do still have within us that desire for dominance. And I would agree with that. But what I am also saying is that one of the things that makes humans so successful is that we are very flexible at adapting to different environmental conditions and social conditions. And so when we live from 6,000 years ago up until the present in societies in which it's make or break, whether we are high up on the status hierarchy, it's understandable that people will seek status, will laud the person who's a kind of patriarchal father figure politically. But what I'm saying is it's not inevitable that even those people have to do that because, and that's why it was so important for me to show that hierarchy is not only hurtful for those at the bottom, but for those at the top. So there's a big portion of chapter one that argues that so that we can see that the kind of desire for hierarchy comes out of an anxiety and, of course, anxiety is connected to obsessive behavior, which is that craving for something and that yearning for something like a drug but without actually feeling satisfied from it, that behavior that so often characterizes people who are at the top. That's not pleasure and that's not happiness, and it's not the genuine, robust happiness that we all as humans really seek. We may feel it as a kind of compensatory like a drug, like something that temporarily works and assuages the anxiety, but it doesn't really do the trick in a real biological and neurological sense. And I cite some of the neurological research on drug addiction to show that drug addiction is not coming from a desire for pleasure. It's coming from a sense of wanting something but not being pleased by it, and the wanting keeps being activated. And I think the same thing is very clearly true among those who seek dominance. It isn't a pleasure-seeking thing. It's something that's coming from earlier evolutionary patterns and ones that ultimately are pretty destructive, both to self and to others. I don't know for sure whether the people like your brother would ever change their ways, but I do know that if you watch people, most of them, with a few exceptions, can be very changeable and learn new ways and think about new ways and, and be challenged to think through different things and be receptive to the possibility of what is both a new way of behaving but also something that is also very old and namely equality. As I said, Martin, I've not yet read the last 25 pages of the book, so I need you to fill me in on something. This is a thoroughgoing change of the world as we know to reach the utopia that you describe in this book, but I'm still not sure what the mechanism is to protect 
the society and make sure it happens? Because you're very strongly opposed to coercion, right? Yeah. So is there a police officer with a gun? Is there a net that someone could wrap you in that'll they'll haul you off to Australia? Is there compulsion in this society in those last 25 pages? There is a little bit. I mean, obviously, the issue that some of my friends raised is, well, what happens? Yeah, if there's a Hitler, if there's a horrible person who is a dictator who tries to eradicate everything, what do we do about that person? It is coming in that chapter. It's not a perfect description, and I'm well aware of the things that are missing, and that's one of the conundrums that I have. I Just very quickly, one thing I thought is that We don't want entrenched police officers who have guns and power and who have them permanently. But what we could have is people rotating in and off service as enforcers, and they could have weapons that are perhaps non-lethal but tranquilizing and ones that are only temporarily effective, that are programmed to only work at certain times so that those could be used in the rare event that someone arose who was a major threat to everyone else's freedom and equality. But I wouldn't underestimate the effect that society itself can have on individuals. You know, in small-scale societies, being stingy and being despotic and being hierarchical are the most shameful sorts of things. And, of course, as I said, shame has a double edge sometimes, but it's a very powerful emotion. It keeps people in small-scale societies, including in agricultural societies like the Yi, who I studied, it keeps them from becoming despotic because they're so hated if they act in any despotic way. And I like to think of it in the idea of the way that we are with friends. You know, there may be in a friendship group someone who's very forceful and has strong ideas, But I don't think in any friendship group I've been in has anyone ever said, we will go to this movie, and if we don't, I will punish you. I mean, if any of your friends said that, you'd say, get lost, and they no longer be a friend, right? And what that shows is even with those who might have a despotic impulse within them, the forces that are countervailing to that are very, very strong in a small group, in a friendship group, and the same can be true in Utopia. I don't know 100% sure that I'm right about that. Obviously, utopia has never existed in the way that I've written it, so I don't know, but I make a strong argument that I believe that that's the case. But I also would love, as you would too, to hear from other listeners and other people, and I really mean that. I enjoy discussing ideas, and I enjoy listening also to other people's ideas. So I think it's a great thing that you suggest to ask all people to come up with their own utopian ideas. I think that's what we really need, above all, to have that hope that another world is possible. And you said, Martin, that you'd be happy to have people contact you. You don't have your own website, or I'm sure that through the university there, Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, that people could track down email there. Would you care to pass out an email that people can reach out to you? Sure, I'd be very happy to. So my email is three letters, M as in Martin, D as in Donald, S as in Shane Halls, N-E-W-Y-O-R-K at gmail.com. So it's just M-D-S newyork at gmail.com. And I'd be very happy to hear from anyone and even those who have questions, their own ideas or countervailing notions. So one last thing that I wanted to ask you, and of course, people who are envisioning utopia 
will look and say, well, this experiment was tried, this experiment was tried. One of the experiments that I'm aware of was Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. The Quakers came in, and even though they brought with them this Protestant work ethic that the Puritans also had, they believed in egalitarian, and, you know, Quaker decision-making, I'm sure you know, is not hierarchical. Right, right. For 370 years, Quakers have been deciding things in unity, which blows the mind of most people who only know voting or arguing or forcing your way or whatever. Certainly that's one experiment, and I'd say that experiment failed when the Quakers were no longer in the majority, and then the majority started voting for things like wars. But that's just one experiment in utopia. Can you point to experiments with utopia or small-scale versions of it in the past that have been particularly promising or maybe are good indicators of what doesn't work? A lot of Americans don't know, my students don't know, that in the 19th century there were so many utopian experiments in the United States and utopian communities formed. I don't really have one that is a favorite, but I do recognize that so many of them had notions of equality as a central component. As you mentioned, I I do know a fair bit about the Quakers from having gone to grad school in Philadelphia and becoming involved in various of the Quaker activities. And you're right that as the Quakers were no longer in the majority, that really eliminated a lot of their effectiveness, though not totally. They still have quite an effect in Philadelphia today, and I think in certain, in quite a fair number of circles, You're a Quaker and I'm not, but I do believe in the power of minorities to speak out and say what they believe, and both the power and the importance of doing that. That's why I'm writing ideas that are bold and comprehensive, and some people say we may never live to see, but because I think that the greatest enemy to a good life for all of us, both as individuals and as social beings, is to not talk about what can be better. So I can't answer your question about a specific utopian experiment, but the general impulse is one that I really want to encourage and hopefully help reignite. I think too many people have implicitly subscribed to Thatcherism and Thatcher's notion that there's no alternative, as she famously said, and there is an alternative. Sure, there is. Well, I strongly applaud you, cheer for you. I want to uplift for everybody the work of Martin Shainhalls. The book, Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia, Equality Reimagined. We've just scratched the surface here today, folks. Please pick up the book, and we've got links so you can get it very easily. Of course, Amazon, everywhere else you can get it. We'll have the email for Martin on our website, mdsnewyork at gmail.com. Just come to northernspiritradio.org, and you'll find the links that you need. Again, Martin, I feel frustrated by the amount of your material that we haven't been able to engage with, (laughs) but I am so grateful for what we're able to talk about and for what you've written and that you joined me here today for Spirit in Action. It's been great, Mark. You're a great interviewer, and I've really enjoyed it. And folks, just remember, you can find all this on northernspiritradio.org, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. 
guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh